Fort Hawkins in Frontier, Georgia. That's the title of a book written by Diane Dent Wilcox in 1999. Hello, I'm Ben Sandifer, and on episode two of our podcast series about historic Fort Hawkins, we talked with the author of that book. Diane, how and when did you first get interested in Fort Hawkins? I started teaching in a non-traditional manner. I was almost finished with my bachelor's degree at Mercer, but as a young married wife, I found out that my first child was on the way. A wonderful advisor said, hey, you finished your English degree, graduate, go home and raise your children like you told me you were traditionally. And then when you get ready to come back, I'll put you on an internship. Well, six years later, I'm back at Mercer. The same advisor put me on an internship, so I went straight into the classroom. And my students were not interested in school. But I had to pass this building close to the Okmulgee Monument every morning on the way to school. And I was always interested. I never knew what it was. So I went to my friends at Oatmoggy and I asked a question, what is that building? Why is it there? Well, that's Fort Hawkins. Two weeks later, I had a key. And I used students to do research on the fort. Once they saw it as a project, they did a visual, they did a 2000 word MLA research paper, and they had an oral component. They actually gave the tours at the fort It changed their entire outlook about writing, about history, about school. And where Macon began is where these young people began their adventure. That was English class, not history, right? That was English class, not history. I was teaching it for a private school, so I had more freedom about what I did. But one young man who had never indicated any academic interest might not have graduated. Once I put a a hammer in his hand and say, can you fix this step? His entire attitude changed. This became real, it became relevant. And he did very well and graduated. Now, how long did you and your students work there? I worked at Fort Hawkins for a period of 12 years with three different school groups. We started opening the fort like the current group is doing on Sunday afternoons or on Saturday afternoons. The first group was 11th graders. The second group was 8th graders. They really got into it. And while we were doing that, we started adding the cherry blossom festivals to our itinerary. And uh, we had visitors. One man showed up from BBC. He was filming for festivals in which people dressed in costumes. And a young lady there, an eighth grader, her father was on hand so we could get permission for her to be filmed. She spoke to him about her involvement in the Ford and said, my dad did a project here when he attended Willingham High School in eighth grade and they talked together for BBC. So the third group was with Georgia Military College where I teach now. And uh, one of my former students is with the current group, and she's gotten me involved in Fort Hawkins all over again. And that brings us to your book, Fort Hawkins in Frontier, Georgia. Why did you decide to write this? After 12 years, a friend who was a ranger at Oatmulgee uh, Monument, Sam Lawson, said, okay, you're changing schools again. 
what are you going to do with all this information? And I laughed and I said, well, I could write a book. And he said, do it. So what Fort Hawkins in Frontier, Georgia is, is a compilation of everything that we learned at the fort in 12 years. It's primary documents indexed. By that I mean, I found a transcription of Benjamin Hawkins' letters. And so every time he mentioned a place or an event, I've listed it in the book. I found that two Moravian missionaries were at the Indian Agency with Hawkins. They kept a diary. I was able to find the diary when they listed a date, event, people. I indexed that. I found a book by Ken Krakow called Place Names in Georgia. So many of us don't believe that Okmulgee is a derivative of a Muskegon word. Oconee, Ichikani, so many of the things we take for granted is their imprint upon our society. So with Ken Krakow's Place Names in Georgia, I was able to add that. So it's an index by date, alphabetically, by person, and place names with a list of rare sources that we used over the years because our local history was scattered. My students went to the genealogy room of the Washington Memorial Library. And that's one reason this project worked. We had wonderful librarians that had folders full of information for the students. The student would go down today, of course, that's computerized and indexed. But the students were given access to newspaper articles from the time that things happened, letters from one individual to another. And so it was a different type of research than the normal middle school, high school, or college student would do. Now in Macon, middle Georgia, we tend to think of Fort Hawkins as local, one of our tourist attractions, like the Hay House, the Cannonball House, the Okmulgee Monument. But Fort Hawkins had national historic significance, didn't it? It did. I attended an event at the Macon Coliseum. And I'll give a shout-out to my mother and a shout-out to Marty Willett. My mother drove school buses for Bibb County, and she became the driver that all of the students and teachers wanted for field trips. And, of course, she met Marty in doing this. And she was learning the history as well. So I went to a meeting of the Georgia Baptist Convention at the Macon Coliseum at a time when the Macon Convention and Visitors Bureau office was located in the lobby of the Coliseum. During a break, I walked in and Marty Willett was there. And I looked at him and said, I want to give tours. He didn't miss a beat. He handed me a manual. He said, learn this and come back and speak with me. For a period of six or seven years then, I did the step-on tours during Cherry Blossom Festival of Hay House, Cannonball House, and Sydney Lanier Cottage. But during the evenings, during Cherry Blossom, my students would open Fort Hawkins from five to seven. After seven, I would then skip over to Okmulgee Monument and volunteer for the torchlight tours. And that's how it all got started. I did look at 
Macon's history as being local. But someone in this experience said, no, you need to go to the state level. And I began looking at the fort on a state level. On a state level, Fort Hawkins was a headquarters for settlement from here to the Alabama line and from here down the Okmulgee and the Omaha to the Atlantic Ocean. We were the interior settlement for the state of Georgia. And then someone said, hey, why don't you look at it from a national perspective? So from a national perspective, we know that we had 13 colonies and then we had 13 states. What most people don't realize is that when we became states, the boundary of the United States was the Altmulgee and the Ottomaha Corridor. So we were the southwest boundary of the original 13 states. And then by treaties with Native Americans like the Muskegon Nation, we eventually grew to be the largest state east of the Mississippi River. And at that time, the state capital was in Milledgeville? Capital was in Milledgeville until about 1868. Working for Georgia military, I was there during a time when we got $10 million worth of grants to restore that building. And one of the engineers that worked for us, I called him one day and asked him about the building. And he told me how it was put together. Those walls are three and a half feet thick at the bottom. So in 1803, the boundary had just moved from the 1790 boundary of the Oconee River. Their Montpelier area is older than Milledgeville, just like our Fort Hill neighborhood is older than Macon. Montpelier was on the United States side of the boundary. And then when the next boundary opened to Commissioner Creek, which was 1805, that Capitol building was constructed. So it was built as a fortress. Diane, can you talk a little bit about the archaeological digs that have been done many times through the years at Fort Hawkins and why they are important to telling the story and learning the history and learning the impact of Fort Hawkins? There's two ways to view history. One is from what people have told us and what people have written. The other way is through archaeology to go into the dirt and to find what is there. So I can't speak to the older archaeology. I know it was Works Progress Administration, and that's why we have the restored blockhouse replica on the actual site where a blockhouse was located. But I was present for the Lamar Institute archaeology digs, and what this told us was that the fort was more advanced than we thought. We found a brick hearth, or Dan and his team found a brick double hearth and brick floors when most of us were thinking the buildings were only temporary, that they were only logs, but we found brick. Uh, We found glass, glass windows. That's highly advanced for the time. And 
the other thing that the archaeology discovered was that there was not just one stockade. There was the one that we think about, two block houses, basically a square design. But there was a second stockade which came out and gave more protection to each of the um, block houses. It actually goes into one of the public streets that is there now and um, made the fort even more formidable. And that's something that people will always ask, well, was there a battle at Fort Hawkins? No, there was not. Do you think logically about this? Enemies do not attack our military strength. They look for weak points because we had that military strength on Fort Hill overlooking the old Mulgee. Then we didn't have a direct attack. We supplied soldiers for battles. We supplied food for soldiers, equipment, training. But the battle did not come to the hill. And Fort Hawkins was just one of several forts along a certain corridor or in a particular area? Yes. Fort Hawkins was the largest fort, and according to the Secretary of War at the time, it was the strongest fort in the Southwest during the War of 1812. These other forts were more temporary. There are two strings of forts that start at Fort Hawkins. We'll go with Benjamin Hawkins first. Benjamin Hawkins did not stay at Fort Hawkins full time. He had moved himself and a family that he had started to the Flint River, which was the next treaty boundary. His Indian agency, they are close to modern-day Roberta, Georgia, is where he trained people in agriculture, in weaving. He trained Native Americans so that they could assimilate into the society. Still, in Native American terms, we have people who assimilate and we have traditionalists. Traditionalists might not even recognize the United States as being a controlling entity to this day because they were separate nations. I liked very much when I met a man at the Oatmogee Indian Festival and when he gave me his card, his Native American name translates to walks into worlds. So he sees both sides of this issue, and that's what I like to present. So Hawkins moved out to the Indian Agency, but he also built a fort across the river from the agency named Fort Lawrence as a military protection for his operation there. So he was instrumental in opening what is called the Federal Road. Now this is another thing that makes Fort Hawkins so important. By the War of 1812, there were a great many tensions on the frontier, and one of them was this federal road, because the government did get permission to open a road through the nations. The nations that Hawkins dealt with are the Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, Muscogee, and then the Seminole later separated from the Muscogee. 
he was called the beloved man of the four nations. So he got permission to build this road through. Now, I teach English and I think about communication. Communication for the United States was by written document or by hearing a speech. Communication for Native Americans was more by hearing a speech or talking to another person. So you have a legal document somewhere that says that these European descendants can build a road. But we have an indigenous population that may not have heard that message. Therefore, the tensions arise. So between Macon and the Creek Agency is this federal road. And then from Fort Hawkins, Benjamin Hawkins builds Fort Lawrence. Then as the road goes on west, we get Fort Perry, Fort Gaines, Fort Mitchell, Fort Bainbridge, Fort Hull, Fort Decatur, Fort Jackson in Alabama, Fort Williams, Fort Strother, Fort Deposit, Fort Dale, Fort Crawford, Fort Mims, Fort Montgomery, and then in the western part of Montgomery of Alabama, we have Fort Stoddard. So that's one string of forts that was dependent upon Fort Hawkins, and those go along the Federal Road. The second string of forts, they were built during tensions of 1812. So I've got a list here later of things that were happening on the frontier. A mail carrier was killed. Then there's retaliation. There's retaliation for the retaliation, and these tensions grow. A settler and his son were attacked because a new treaty line opened, and they went in to build a new house. But again, they're working on written documents, and the natives may not have heard, or they may just have been tired of this continual encroachment, and they attacked. And then there was retaliation. This was going on over and over and over again. Um, So this string of forts goes along the Okmulgee, and they were requested after an attack upon some settlers by um, David Blackshear was involved, General Blackshear. These forts, temporary. We do have a letter that says that they were built. There's some contention about whether one or more of them may not have been finished. They're built every 10 miles on the Old Mulgee from Fort Hawkins into Telfair County. They are Fort Telfair, Fort Twiggs, Fort Jackson, Fort Pike, Fort Mitchell, Fort Green, Fort Lawrence, Fort Adams, Fort Clark, and Fort McIntosh. When I worked on Fort Hill, I wanted the city to recognize that Fort Hawkins is another jewel in Macon's crown. It is the bridge from the Muskegon uh, histories and those of the older groups that were at the Altmulgee National Monument and the city we know today is Macon. Now I'm seeing the fort as this centerpiece of the forts going down the Federal Road, the forts going down the Ottomaha, and that's how this nation expanded. So for the south part of the nation, Fort Hawkins is a jeweled clasp and a necklace of necessary military establishments to make us what we are now. Whether this was the right avenue for us to take or not, 
when we consider that other nations were involved, the indigenous people. We can't make that determination now. It happened. It's history. These forts are why we are who we are now. Fort Hawkins was built in 1806 and Macon was established in 1823. How is a fort important to the development of Macon? The boundary to the Okmulgee River is 1805. Fort Hawkins is built. It's an interesting story even that Benjamin Hawkins was involved. I'm going to jump back for a moment to North Carolina. A lot of people from Georgia came from North Carolina and Hawkins did. He lived on a plantation. The people next door had a young son named Nathaniel Macon. And Nathaniel Macon and Benjamin Hawkins had the same tutor. Young men of that era had a tutor. Well, the two young men also went together to the College of New Jersey, which later became Princeton. And George Washington needed a French interpreter. Benjamin Hawkins became that French interpreter as a young man. So as George Washington is involved in establishing a new nation, he needs someone on the frontier to begin negotiations with the groups that are already here. And Hawkins became that man. Macon became a a senator, and uh, Hawkins also became a senator. And that brings us to Fort Hill, because Benjamin Hawkins chose that location on a high hill overlooking the boundary of the Okmulgee River to establish the fort. Benjamin Hawkins then moved on to the Flint River to begin his Indian agency work there and the training of people to assimilate into a new culture. Over 3,000 people went through that agency moving west in the year 1812 alone. That comes from one of Hawkins' um, letters and documents. The name Fort Hawkins indicates a military establishment, but also a village. Because when you have these military people here, then you need a blacksmith, you need a doctor, you normally have some sort of religious organization that comes. The soldiers, if they're stationed there for any period of time, would like to have their families nearby. And a village develops around the military installation. We've learned that the Fort Hill Cemetery, which Macon has a nice banner on, a marble arch it was that says 1825 is much much older is associated with the fort and most of these forts now we're also looking for the location of a worship center and a cemetery so all of this is happening on fort hill including one man named simry rose who comes to the fort and he does a handwritten newspaper with some partners And he liked planning things, so he was on a committee to plan a city. But Simri Rose also planned a beautiful cemetery that's landscaped, and he chose his burial place on the banks of the Okmulgee River, looking back at the fort, because the fort and this community around it, originally called Fort Hawkins, later called Newtown, If there had been no Fort Hawkins neighborhood, there would be no Macon. And so East Macon, as it is now assimilated into the city limits, is 20, 17 years older than the city. 
The county was constituted in December of 1822, either on the 8th or the 9th, and then Macon one year later. Now that Fort Hawkins has reopened, what is the most important thing, in your opinion, for someone to get from a visit to Fort Hawkins? I like for people to recognize their own heritage. If we grew up in middle Georgia, Fort Hawkins is part of our heritage. If we grew up in Georgia, period, Fort Hawkins is part of our heritage. If we trace back to the time of the original 13 colonies and states, no matter where we live, Fort Hawkins is a part of our heritage. More than that is a symbol of what was happening everywhere in our nation. And it's actually a part of why we sing a song that includes the words from sea to shining sea. The Mulgee River goes down with the Oconee to form the Otamaha. It goes straight to the Atlantic Ocean. A lot of our trade happened that way. Uh, This community that developed in central Georgia became the Queen Inland City of the South. Macon, Georgia, that cotton went from here to the coast, down the Okmulgee and Ottomaha, and on to England and France and Germany and every place that needed cotton. Our timber went that way. Our naval stores went that way. And um, all of this is involved when we built a nuclear reaction at Plant Hatch um, the nuclear reactor was floated up the Otamaha River uh, because it was too big to come another way. So our fort is a centerpiece, a headquarters for everything else that we became. And once again, the name of the book, first published in 1999, is Fort Hawkins and Frontier Georgia. Diane, is that still available? So Fort Hawkins and Frontier Georgia is out of print. I originally um, printed 50, they sold out. We've printed 50 more, they sold out. There are copies in the Middle Georgia libraries, the regional libraries, the genealogy room in particular. Roots Web contacted me because it has so many names, dates, and places in it, and they asked for permission to put it online. So Fort Hawkins and Frontier Georgia is available, full text, for free, online, for people who would like to research more about the fort, about themselves, about their family members, about their home places, and it is out there for a base Start here, do your own research, and add to our story of Fort Hawkins, Georgia, and our nation. Diane Dent Wilcox, our guest on the Fort Hawkins podcast, episode number two. And just a couple of reminders, our first episode is still available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hopefully, these podcasts will entice you to visit historic Fort Hawkins. It's now open to the public Saturdays and Sundays from noon to 4 p.m. Admission and parking at the fort are both free. For Middle Georgia Podcast, I'm Ben Sandifer. Yeah.